You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1914th edition of the St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 2nd of February 2022. The editor of this edition is myself, Graham Parley, the producer is Colin Holmes and your readers are Sue Harrington-Spear and myself, Graham Parley. And I'd also like to mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. So we'll commence with the headlines. And the first one is HGV and environment issues raised over size well fen plans. Communities will be taken into account pledge over pylon plans. Q&A sessions held ahead of A14 roadworks. Council tenants to share £8 million after being overcharged on rent. Concerns have been raised about the impact of creating a fen meadow in a village to compensate for land lost to a planned new nuclear power plant on the Suffolk coast. Land at Pakenham is one of three areas in the county which will be used to make up for the destruction of about 0.46 hectares of fen meadow due to Sizewell Sea. SCZ Co, which was set up by power company EDF and General Nuclear International Limited, or GNI, to oversee the Sizewell Sea development, has drafted documents outlining how it will create the Fen Meadows sites also at Benhall and Halesworth. However, parish councils and an environmental group have raised issues about HGV movements between Pakenham and Sizewell, as well as the impact on the Blackbourne chalk stream. The plans for the area, south of Pakenham Mill, will see about 50 centimetres of topsoil removed and then new soil from Sizewell added. Soils from Pakenham, the largest of the Fen Meadow sites, could be used at Sizewell. Assuming the use of 20-tonne lorries, there would be an estimated 96 two-way HGV movements a day between the two sites to take away and deliver about 23,000 cubic metres of soil over 16 weeks according to a document on the Pakenham plan, submitted to the County Council. They would access the Pakenham site from junction 43 of the A14 and turn onto the A143 before turning right onto Thurston Road. HGVs would turn left into the site and right out of the site. Ixworth and Ixworth Thorpe Parish Council said the use of the staggered junction off the A143, where there have been accidents, would see the lorries turn across oncoming traffic. It said the council has concerns that this may be exceedingly difficult as traffic coming down the opposite direction is almost constant, even cars sometimes find it difficult to turn. The authority suggested the lorries use a nearby roundabout to approach the Thurston Road junction from the opposite direction, so the lorries make a left turn off the A143. Pakenham Parish Council echoed the suggestion, as did Roger Spiller, chairman of Green Ixworth. Mr Spiller sought assurances that the proposal would not reduce the volume of summertime water into the Blackbourne, which is already under stress. This was supported by EDF's hydrological report, said Mr Spiller. He felt that ensuring water levels into the Blackbourne was important as chalk streams were a habitat for wildlife and it would help counteract any pollutants in the waterway. Mr Spiller added that Ixworth was not formally consulted initially as the site was in another parish and, as a result, a voluntary consortium of parish councils needed to be developed. Another but lesser way of dealing with this is for Suffolk County Council to automatically consult contiguous parishes for any significant development, he said. The Pakenham Fen could be delivered by spring-summer 2026 or earlier if alternative options are found for the reuse of its soil at a non-Sizewell location. A Sizewell Sea spokeswoman said the proposals were designed to re-establish natural hydraulical conditions to allow Fen Meadow to flourish and no weirs were proposed to raise water levels within on-site ditches. Weirs were considered in the design, she said, but rejected because of the negative impact they could have on the Pakenham Meadow site of special scientific interest and downstream water levels and flows. 
Each of the three Fen Meadow areas would, however, be provided with a piped overflow to mitigate against site flooding, as Fen Meadow is susceptible to prolonged foundation, she said. A Suffolk County Council spokesman said the developer would be required to submit a final construction travel management plan, or a CTMP, before work could start. As the Pakenham works will be after the main Sizemore site has begun, a formal transport review group will oversee the transport impacts, including compliance with the CTMP, and the council had noted the suggestions about routing HGVs to the roundabout south of Ixworth, which it will discuss with Sizemore C. He added, while there is no requirement for us to do so, we have undertaken consultation with the community, which has raised awareness demonstrated by Green Ixworth interest, and those representations will be taken into account by the Council as the project moves forward. Communities will be taken into account pledge over piling plans. The interests of local communities and the environment will be taken into account when considering plans to build 110 miles of 50 metre high pylons across Suffolk and Essex countryside. A government department has pledged. The Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, BEIS, was responding to concerns raised by campaigners who slammed Energy and Climate Minister Graeme Stewart for refusing to review the plans. A spokesman said, We recognise the need to support communities, businesses and the countryside, while at the same time ensuring energy security for the whole country. Tackling climate change and generating more cheap, clean power in the UK. All energy infrastructure projects are subject to strict planning controls to ensure that the interests of local communities and the impact on the local environment are taken into account. This includes the requirement to conduct environmental impact assessments and public engagement on planning applications. Essex-Suffolk-Norfolk pylons accuse the government of completely failing consumers, the environment and future generations. After Energy and Climate Minister Graham Stewart said a review of the pylon contracts was not the best approach. The structures are set to support power lines carrying electricity from wind farms off the East Anglia coast and will line a route running through Suffolk and into Essex past Dedham, Langham and crossing the A12 to connect into the East Anglian connection substation in Tendring. But campaigner Rosie Pearson said the government seemed determined to compromise substantial areas of the UK with the pylon monstrosities. She added, tens of thousands of people across East Anglia are sick of hearing nothing can be done. It's not too late. This government is barely paying lip service to the need for an offshore strategy in the North Sea. She said state policy on the transmission of power generated offshore was an abject failure and coastlines and the countryside would become unrecognisable as land was given to substations and converter stations, some measuring 30 metres high. On the contrary, the impact is all negative. The new transmission infrastructure is primarily required to transport electricity from offshore wind farms off the east coast and from new nuclear builds on the coast to London, she added. A second series of National Highways public exhibitions are to be held ahead of an A40 enclosure as part of a 16-month resurfacing project. The organisation will be holding three further exhibitions to answer the public's questions over the A14 road surface replacement between Hawley and Tothill near Stowmarket. Construction will start on Tuesday, February 7th, and is due to last until the summer 2024, with a 50 mile per hour contraflow system put in place. The second series of exhibitions will be held today at the Wesley Chapel in Elmswell from 1 until 7pm and tomorrow from 10am to 4pm at Stowmarket Leisure Centre in Stowmarket. Andy Jobling, National Highway's Programme Delivery Manager, said the A14 is a very popular route with motorists helping to provide a transport corridor between the North, the Midlands and East Anglia. 
Upgrading the stretch will make it safer and smoother, ensuring it's fit for the thousands of drivers who use it every day. We are encouraging motorists, local residents and businesses to come to one of our upcoming events to meet the team, learn more about the project and ask any questions they have. The plans will see the busy stretch of road on the A14 between Junction 47A and Junction 49 entirely relayed with new curbs, road markings and reflective studs. However, the roadworks have previously raised concerns for residents in the area. The project is part of a National Highway's long-term plan of investing £400 million to repair and replace roads across the country. Council tenants to share £8 million after being overcharged on rent. Social housing tenants in East Suffolk will gain refunds totalling around £8 million and have rents recalculated after historical overcharging. East Suffolk Council will provide full refunds to tenants and ex-tenants as it did not fully comply with rent-setting regulations between 2016 and 2022. The breach of the regulator of social housing standards related to a council decision in 2014 to start converting tenancies being relet from social rent to affordable rent to provide additional funding for new development. Affordable rents should not be higher than 80% of the rent expected in that area. This means they can be more expensive than social rents, which should not be higher than a formula rent figure based on the property's value and size and low income levels. Councillor Peter Byatt said, This whole matter has been handled thoroughly well by the officers and cabinet member. It is unfair to brand us as the bad guys when the problem was created under a previous administration. The council itself sent a letter to the regulator of social housing and to tenants in 2022 to explain that a consultant the council employed believed it may not be compliant with standards. More than 1,000 properties in East Suffolk have been converted to affordable rent without the permission needed since 2014. Craig Rivett, Cabinet Member for Economic Development, said no tenant will have a rent increase as a result of the recalculations. Every tenant will either be paying the same or less rent than they pay currently. The recalculations will mean all homes converted to affordable rent will be converted to social rent plus an added 5% for all homes except retired living schemes, where 10% will be added. This uplift of 5-10% to 10% is explained in the officer's report by the need for money to build new homes and maintain current ones to high standard, taking into account the new building safety and fire safety regulations and a commitment to ensure all homes have an EPC, Energy Performance Certificate, rating of at least C by 2030. The current confirmed cost of the refunds owed is £6,302,905, and this is projected to increase to £7,203,320 once the audit is complete. It is estimated a further £385,672 will be owed for the incorrect charging for heating services and £451,431.71p in relation to incorrect rents during the current financial year. The Council was also judged to be non-compliant in certain areas of building safety by the consultant they recruited in 2021 and has since made improvements. The findings included 93 communal areas with asbestos containing materials and 90 out of 93 properties requiring a fire risk assessment not having had one. Councillor Rivet updated the Council that they are now fully compliant in the areas of asbestos and fire safety. Lift and water safety is also now completely up to standard. Electrical safety is almost 98% compliant and gas safety is just under full compliance.
And now for some general news. The widow of a well-known milkman who delivered around Bury St Edmunds for more than 40 years has paid tribute to her husband, describing him as a one-off. Peter Cooper, 87, who died on January the 11th, worked on St Edmunds dairies, I beg your pardon, in Western Way from 1972 until he retired at 65 and served hotels, West Suffolk Hospital, care homes and shops in the town. Born in Sapperston in 1935, Peter did his national service at 18 in Gibraltar, but it was when he was set to enlist again that a meeting with his now wife Rosie in 1957 changed his plans. She explained, I bumped into my cousin in the middle of St John Street in town and he was with a couple of guys, including Pete. We all stood talking, then the rest of them walked off and left me with him. He walked me to my bus stop and by the time we got there, we'd arranged to meet the Saturday after. Their first date was at a pub before going to the Playhouse Cinema and in 1960 the pair married at Abbeygate Street Registry Office. Peter was good with mechanics and worked as a farm labourer for Clements in Stanningfield and at a farm in Fenditton as well as working for engineers Man Edgerton and Co in Bury St Edmunds. His diary work no, his dairy work started at Mildenhall's Bridge Farm Dairies before moving to St Edmund's Dairies. Rose said he was a hard worker, up at 2pm, getting stuff loaded and doing his round. Sometimes customers would want something else and he would go back to the dairy and out again, then come home and do his paperwork, not finishing until around 5pm. Rose said he also enjoyed his shed at the bottom of their Horringer garden, doing woodwork, working in the garden and cooking. She said, Peter loved making stuff with wood and working with the earth. Those were his happy places. He was very good at cheese straws and scones. That man made the most perfect scones. I've tried to make them like him, but never managed it. Rose described Peter as a clever and honest man who was true to himself. She added, all in all, Pete was our Mr Perfect, quietly doing his stuff, but always loving his family and his home. Definitely a one-off. Peter had two sons, Michael, who died in 2010, and Neville, a daughter, Janice, nine grandchildren and 15 great-grandchildren. His funeral will be at 2pm on February the 6th at Horringer Church. A social enterprise hoping to licence rickshaws as a taxi alternative put its proposals to a West Suffolk Council <laughs> meeting this week. Eco-carriers, Bury St Edmunds, was met with mixed responses at the Licensing and Regulatory Committee meeting on Monday, with some councillors praising the environmental benefit and while others were terrified by safety implications. Libby Ronzetta, director at Eco-carriers, said, We created the social enterprise to promote, facilitate and encourage people to use their bicycles in Bury and the surrounding areas rather than using their cars. We set out to show you can do all sorts of things with a bike. For a year we've been using bikes and cargo bikes for deliveries for businesses in town. Since September we've been cycling with children to school on the bike train. It seems a natural progression for us to get a couple of pedicabs and to charge as a cycle taxi service. We're not for profit, we're not interested in making money and what we make is invested in meeting our social aims. Our business model is a community benefit society, so we're owned by our members. We need to take our pedicab idea to our members and raise the finance. The organisation plans to use two rickshaws and operate in Bury and the surrounding villages. Ms Franzetta is also the founder and chair of Bury Rickshaw, a separate organisation to help people experiencing social isolation and loneliness to get out and about. West Suffolk Council's existing Hackney Carriage and Private Hire Handbook does not mention pedal-powered vehicles, so charging for rickshaw services is not permitted. Councillors could review and change this. Councillor Becky Hofsenberger said, I thoroughly support this idea and it ties in well with the Council's net zero policy. The Council's aim is to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2030, is included in its environmental statement 2021 to 2022. 
Councillor Sarah Mildmay White said, It terrifies me. I think it beggars belief. It's 60 miles per hour on the roads out of villages. Are you seriously saying you can cycle two people in a cab like this on the A14 to Ruffham or to the top of Ruffham Hill, which gets caked in mud? Lady Miriam Hubbard, who lived here and got around in her mobility scooter, was run over twice and died the second time. I don't want to be defeatist, but it makes me really nervous. Ms Ranzetta made the point that other towns in the UK had licensed rickshaws operating as taxis. Councillors suggested eco-carriers draw up a business case and risk assessment to help them decide whether to alter their policies. Ms Ranzetta said after the meeting, we realised that licensing pedicabs is still fairly uncommon and it's a complex area. We will now work up our business case, address the concerns that were expressed and work with licensing officers to see what can be done about amending the council's taxi licensing to include pedicabs. An illuminated light trail is to return to Suffolk Manor House and Gardens with an Alice in Wonderland theme. Hawley Park's spectacle of light is to kick off next month to raise funds for Suffolk Charity St Elizabeth Hospice. Visitors will be able to follow the white rabbit around the gardens and step into a fantasy world to meet the Mad Hatter, the Queen of Hearts and the Cheshire Cat. This is the third time the Spectacle of Light event has been held at the venue near Stowmarket. It will take place every Friday, Saturday and Sunday evening from next Friday, February the 3rd to February the 26th, 2023. Visitors can make a donation to St Elizabeth Hospice in return for ribbon to tie on the event's wishing tree. Robert Williams of Hawley Park said, We are very proud to be partnering with St Elizabeth Hospice for our spectacle of light and to be raising money for the charity through the event's wonderful wishing tree. Visitors can make a donation in return for a ribbon to tie on one of the branches. This can be to make a wish or simply remember a loved one. After all the pandemic restrictions, it is lovely to be able to bring back this feature and make the event bigger and better than ever for 2023. Liz Baldwin, Corporate and Sponsorship Fundraising Manager at the charity, added that they are delighted to be chosen to be supported by the event, which will make a big difference. St Elizabeth Hospice delivers care to patients living with progressive and life-limiting illnesses and their families in Suffolk. Free parking will be available and dogs are welcome on short leads. There is a 10% discount on tickets held until February the 2nd. To book, visit www.everymantheatre.org.uk forward slash shows forward slash spectacle of light, Hawley Park, or just call 01242 705555. Beach huts stranded on a promenade for more than four years could soon get their sea views back. Some 55 huts were left partially blocking the prom at Felixstowe after severe beach erosion meant they could no longer stand on the shore. Huts had stood near the spa pavilion since the beach hut craze started in Victorian times. East Suffolk Council managed to find sites for 41 of the wooden chalets, but that left 14 to be evicted with nowhere to go and these have now been removed and put into storage. But there is hope on the horizon for the 14, with council planners backing proposals from the Felixstowe Beach Hut and Shally Association to create a new hut site on land on the seaward side of the seawall at Martello Park on the south seafront. The plan, which has yet to be decided, was submitted to the council by the association on behalf of and with the support of the 14 spa hut owners. A statement submitted with the application said, we would firstly like to say that we have campaigned throughout the past year to remain at the spa area and still believe this is the best place for our huts, given the heritage of beach huts in that area. However, if remaining at the spa is not possible, we would seek an alternative placement that is comparable to this premier site. 
While there have been concerns about the proposed site because of the impact on rare plants there, the hut owners say they would be willing to take care of the shingle habitat and to maintain and improve it to allow nationally scarce plants to prosper. An East Suffolk Council spokesman said, As a landowner, East Suffolk Council supports the planning application submitted by the Felixstowe Beach Hut and Shirley Association for Manor End. However, without certainty of a decision date or of the decision being successful, it was felt prudent to continue to move the huts to storage. As discussed with the association before the Christmas period, offering a compound area would, until the end of September, would allow this application to go through the planning process. Should the application be successful, any subsequent planning conditions and preparations required for Manor End may prevent the huts being moved for a number of months, matching the timescales for the general move of huts in the spring would therefore be difficult to achieve. And now a little bit of news from Wetheringset. The track is nearing the end of the line. Work on a £60,000 extension project is on track to be completed at the Mid-Suffolk Railway, known as the Midi. The section of track, said to be slightly more than double the railway's length, has been supported by the attraction's own resources and a sponsor a sleeper scheme. The initiative was seen, has seen people donating £15 a sleeper, with donors receiving a certificate confirming their contributions to the cause. A railway spokesperson said the work would ensure the future of the MSLR as one of Suffolk's premier tourist attractions. West Suffolk Council is to postpone a verdict on whether to change taxi fares until the government decides the fuel duty rates for 2023-2024. At a meeting on Tuesday, the Council's Licensing and Regulatory Committee unanimously voted for Councillor Sarah Mildmay White's motion to postpone despite officers' recommendation to keep fares as they are. One taxi driver who spoke at the meeting was unhappy with the recommendation to retain the fares implemented in August last year. Mark Goodchild from Goodchild's Cars in Bury St Edmunds said... We want a 4% rise in fares this year to help drivers with the cost of living and to help offset second-hand car prices, which have increased by 50%. The fare increase we asked for and got last year wasn't enough. Our costs weren't covered. Drive-through car parking safety fares. More than 150 parking tickets have been slapped on drivers parking illegally in an area which has become known locally as the McDonald's drive through in Bury St Edmunds. West Suffolk Council civil parking enforcement officers have issued 106 penalty charge notices, PCN, in Brent Govel Street and a further 56 PCNs in High Baxter Street between October the 1st and January the 23rd. A council spokesman said officers were patrolling Brent Govel Street on average seven times a day and hire Baxter Street three times a day. Meanwhile, Suffolk police officers have also been patrolling the area, issuing tickets and educating drivers that it is a pedestrian and cycle zone with no parking except for loading by lorries. The patrols came as questions are asked why agreed traffic, cal traffic calming measures have yet to be installed. Residents describe a worsening situation with drivers blocking pavements, gathering in groups and forcing pedestrians to negotiate through chaos while litter and rodents were also a problem. Pauline Judge of Well Street said, Apart from the nuisance of people disregarding road rules, the speed and disregard of the safety of pedestrians and cyclists is scary. Councillor Cliff Waterman said Berrytown Council had agreed to fund wooden planters which could deter motorists from parking in the area without blocking access. However, negotiations with Suffolk Highways to implement the scheme had been ongoing for more than two years. Talking to residents, the situation is getting worse. It's an accident waiting to happen, he said. Suffolk Highways was approached for comment. And now we'd like to do some letters. My first letter is from Candia Cross, NSPCC School Service Manager for the East of England. 
Numbers can help to boost charity. Schools across the east of England are being encouraged to sign up to NSPCC Number Day to help more children engage with and enjoy maths. Number Day is an annual event aimed at children in nurseries, primary and secondary schools, with teachers and pupils raising vital funds for the NSPCC. While having fun with maths, this year's event takes place on Friday the February 3rd and will see free curriculum-based downloadable activities available to schools across the country to help liven up their lessons while raising funds for the children's charity. Johnny Ball, veteran children's TV presenter and maths enthusiast, is supporting the NSPCC's Number Day too. He said the NSPCC's Number Day is a great way for all children and schools to celebrate the joy of learning mathematics while supporting such a great cause. The NSPCC website has suggested for activities and games children and teachers can enjoy. Once teachers sign up, they can find out more about activities, including Dress Up for Digits, where children, pupils and staff can wear an item of clothing on number day with a number on it, and make a donation to the NSPCC. The funds raised from this event could help fund NSPCC schools' programmes like Speak Out, Stay Safe, which teaches children in an age-appropriate way to recognise the signs of abuse and speak out if something is worrying them. Our schools team is looking to recruit new Speak Out Stay Safe volunteers throughout January that are passionate about preventing child abuse. Volunteers will deliver workshops in primary schools to years 5 and 6. Speak Out Stay Safe volunteer or learn more about other volunteering opportunities please email volunteerrecruitment at nspcc.org.uk or visit www.nspcc.org.uk forward slash support hyphen us forward slash volunteering hyphen NSPCC childline forward slash volunteer hyphen in schools. I'm sorry about that. That's a, a long uh contact details there. If you'd like to know more about taking part in the NSPCC's forthcoming number day, uh, here we go again, please visit www.nspcc.org.uk forward slash support hyphen us forward slash charity hyphen fundraising forward slash schools hyphen fundraising hyphen ideas forward slash number hyphen day forward slash my goodness that is a long contact detail if graham is not going to lie down <laughs> i will carry on with the next letter this is from daphne fox rgnba ons hollisley and she writes we must fight our nhs we must fight for our NHS even. As a retired nurse, I wonder if people understand what the government means when it increasingly promotes a privately funded healthcare system. Born in 1943, I recall vividly my parents struggling to pay medical bills when any of us were ill. In 1948, the National Health Service <coughs> was formed. It brought public healthcare for the whole community. Medical research resulted in immunisations for conditions such as tuberculosis and childhood diseases. New drugs were developed. High standards of care in all medical areas revolutionised the lives of people for the better and for longer. Surgery was developed, enabling those previously unable to have expensive surgery to undergo transforming treatments. Health visitors, dietitians, school nurses and district nurses actively worked at prevention of illness and cared for patients in their homes when needed. Dental and optical checks prevented disease from progressing. Convalescent homes allowed patients to recover properly following a hospital stay. Medical students and nurses received their training free, including me, conscious that their work was valued. Now we are already paying for ear syringing, I used to do this for free, dental checks and treatments, immunisations and more. 
Gordon Brown has warned that a two-tier service is on its way, with complex health insurance, negotiations and even charges for GP visits, also for A&E visits without referral. Just like America, in fact, which we know is tough on those without funds. So I ask, is this something that people are prepared to accept? To lose the publicly funded NHS would be to lose the greatest institution for the public good our country has ever seen. I urge readers to impress this upon their MPs before it is too late. Now, I have actually run out of letters, but I notice that Sue has two left. So what I'm going to do is go on to do uh, some general items and Sue, if she so wishes, can continue Oh, I beg your pardon, so you've got four letters. I have. You've drawn the short straw there. I'm, I'm happy to read letters, providing <laughs> I don't have a long um, telephone number to read out. Okay. <laughs> I can always read something on, as well. I think, dear listener, we should perhaps suggest we have another editor. Yes, oh. I agree. <laughs> right, moving on. Housing plan behind pub rejected. Proposals to build a home behind a popular public house have been rejected for a second time. Developer Cordage 35 Limited submitted plans to build a home behind the Swan Inn in Clare in October, after previous plans were refused by West Suffolk Council. The most recent proposals were for a single four-bedroom house with provision for three car parking spaces and cycle storage. Planners rejected the previous application, which was for a five-bedroom house, due to a perceived impact on the character of the area and concerns over highway safety. The latest application, the third for the site in total, the developer attempted to alleviate these concerns by reducing the overall size of the property, as well as putting in place a give-way sign at the rear of the pub to help with traffic. However, planning officers refused the proposals, arguing that previous concerns had not been sufficiently addressed. A delegated report said it is considered that the scale of the proposed dwelling would confuse the hierarchy of space within this historic plot and would compete with the listed building for importance. And now my letter from Andrew Phillips, formerly Lord Phillips of Sudbury, OBE, writes about the cake ban idea grotesquely dictatorial. He writes, I just couldn't believe that what I read in Andy Newman's opinion piece, Don't Let Them Eat Cake, the EADT, January the 25th. He reported that the head of the Food Standards Agency, Professor Susan Jebb, bizarrely suggested that people should stop bringing cakes into the office because she claims doing so is undermining people's free will. Surely it is stopping people sharing their birthday cake with their office colleagues that would undermine people's free will. Indeed, it would be a grotesquely dictatorial and oppressive action. The very suggestion by such a senior official of such mini-regulation vividly shows just how far and fast we are declining into an illiberal, intolerant and uncommunal society. I write this from the vantage point of a lifelong career in the law and the House of Lords. Despite everything, I remain a long-term optimist because once roused, the ordinary Brit is wedded to common sense and the common good. Well, well, see, I think I'm going to have to apologise again to you because I found two letters. (laughs) (laughs) So, right, here we go. Um, This is from Peregrine Morley, Adepton. Oppose this bill to dump EU laws. Brexit was not a vote to destroy our environment. Brexit was not a vote to reduce food standards. Brexit was not a vote to reduce our rights at work. Brexit was supposed to give power back to Westminster, not to ministers. I'm writing again about the EU law bill to ask your readers to show that they opposed this bill. If it is passed, we only have weeks until our standards, regulations and quality of life could be thrown onto the Brexit bonfire and the MPs will be giving up their right to scrutinise legislation. Please ask your MP, whether Joe Churchill or Matt Hancock, to oppose this dangerous bill. And I have another letter about Brexit from Arthur Stansfield of Wickham Market who writes, Brexit success falls flat. 
A few months ago, ministers were proclaiming British vote a success for Brexit policies, securing investment in the UK. Like all the claimed Brexit benefits, this showed the delusion of Brexit. Not only has British vote collapsed, but Elon Musk chose to build his battery factory in Germany rather than England because of Brexit. The lack of battery factories in the UK threatens the future of the car industry in the UK. BMW is ending marking electric sorry, BMW is ending making electric minis in the UK. So what will happen to UK mini production in twenty thirty when the ban on new petrol and diesel cars comes into effect? Brexiteers claim to be patriotic, but in reality their so called patriotic policies have done more harm than any of our enemies could wish. Right, Sue, so this is my last letter, I promise you. Really? Okay. <laughs> Uh, it's from Brian Davis, Bury St Edmunds. Empty flats still not replaced. For those who have had to be rehoused, including one tenant with special needs and the general public at large, isn't it time Havebury Housing came clean and explained why it felt obliged to sell the award-winning, eco-friendly Goodfellows block of flats rather than effect whatever repairs deemed necessary to bring back to bring them back to use. With affordable housing being in such short supply, how it is possible, both environmentally and financially, for Havebury Housing to sell off one asset to finance the construction of another. In the meantime, we have two years on one empty block of flats and the replacement as yet to be built. And this is my last letter. Upgrade at Junction has led to deterioration uh, the name and address of this writer has been withheld. Since the £1 million upgrade of the Spread Eagle Junction in Bury St Edmunds, the state of Vinery Road has deteriorated, and despite repeated reporting on Suffolk Highway's reporting tool to get it rectified, I've been wet, met with little or negative response. Whenever it rains for more than an hour, the drains in Vinery Road then block, and water covers large parts of both sides of the road. Pedestrians will get showered by passing vehicles and the pedestrian crossing is often underwater. For months there's been a square pothole in the middle of the pavement entrance to the car park and authorities have placed a yellow cover over it. However, this moves and often ends up in the car park but never over the hole, which is a danger to pedestrians. In recent months, HGVs have taken to driving on the grass verge and pavement to avoid the traffic stationary on the opposite side. After reporting it three times to both Suffolk Highways and local councillors, it is not addressed. It's a danger to pedestrians and the mud that's being carved up is obvious in the photo, which is on the right-hand side of this article. The Highways Department blames the telecom contractor for not seeding it, which is completely untrue. At one point, there was a metal barrier to prevent this from occurring, but that appears snapped off at ground level a long time ago. And now I'd like to do a feature, and it's from a f uh, one of my favourite uh, uh, contributors, which is the local historian, author and tour guide, Martin Taylor. And it's entitled The Road to Mildenhall. Skirting past the vast Mildenhall housing estate that was started in 1946 from Bury St Edmunds to Mildenhall, if driving by road, is just over 12 miles. Going through the villages of Fornham All Saints, Hengrave, Flempton, Lackford and Icklingham. On Thomas Warren's map of 1776, the road leaving Bury then was known as the Heathway, a far older part of the journey from around 3400 to 3000 BC, extending from Pigeon Lane for 1.87 kilometres to Fornham All Saints was discovered in an archaeological dig of June 2016 in preparation for today's sprawling Marham Park development. The remnants of a cursus, once a Neolithic earthwork enclosed with parallel banks, this could have followed astronomical alignments, the heavens above, or even had ritual connotations with ancestor worship. Another journey undertaken in the past was via the River Lark. Although this was somewhat ad hoc until 19... And sorry, I beg your pardon. 
uh, somewhat ad hoc until 1699, when an Act of Parliament gave permission to Henry Ashley to make the river navigable from Long Common, just below Mildenhall Mill, to Eastgate Bridge in Bury. It was to be a commercial venture, toll charges applying, but curiously, pleasure boats were excluded. Throughout the 18th century, the river was improved by dredging and staunches, and by 1716, a com commodity lent its name to part of the Lark, and it is still remembered by some Bury folk as the Coal Rivers. Bury coal merchants, Moody and Betts, at the time paid £55 in toll charges. By the 1840s, wealthy Bury families and the Cullums were involved in the running of the Lark Navigation. Unfortunately, the Bury Corporation denied the Reverend Sir Thomas Jerry Cullum, TGC, the mover and shaker of this scheme, to bring it into the town so barges had to flourish, had to finish their journey at St Saviour's Wharf. Despite protracted legal battle, what finished any chance TGC had of winning was the railways coming to Bury in 1846. Near the wharf, Thomas Ridley, an entrepreneurial grocer of the town, rented from TGC a large coal storage warehouse. When Mr Ridley relinquished it, two brothers, Robert and John Dunnell, added a maltings to the site, remodelled into homes for Havebury housing a few years ago. Interestingly, still visible on the end of the building are several round metal stabilising patrices marked with TGC 1851. But one is different. It has R. Bobby Bury St Edmunds, the only public vestige of the company other than the Robert Bobby Way sign in the town. And now... Peter Good, energy advisor and environmental researcher, writes about the end of single-use products. This is his green view. Images of rubbish collected by the ocean currents to form huge islands like the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Seabirds caught up in discarded packaging or even closer to home, the littering of public places. Single-use packaging products are towards the top of the list of our impacts on the environment that we simply have not got to grips with. Plastic, glass and metal are deeply embedded within our food supply chain. Who takes responsibility for dealing with packaging waste along that chain from raw material manufacture to end of life has been contested for decades. In the 1960s and 70s, it used to be the activity of young and old alike to take drink bottles back to the shop that sold them to get a return on the deposit. Youngsters like me would take lemonade bottles back for the deposit paid in big old pennies. Glass dominated the drinks industry back then and each bottle had its return value moulded into the glass so the penny, or whatever was shown, would be claimed. The bottle would be returned, cleaned and reused, with bottles going back and forth between producer and customer up to seven times. Milk was also delivered in glass bottles and collected from the doorstep before the domination of the supermarkets. But the culture of use and return faded away with the rise of the aluminium can and plastic bottle. The connection between who sold it, who bought it and where it ended up was lost. One of the results of the images we now see in the press. Lockdown aggravated the situation when the public headed out from enforced confinement to places that were simply not geared up for the influx or our throwaway behaviour that was witnessed, resulting in beauty spots with overflowing bins and rubbish blighting the beauty and endangering wildlife. There is hope, finally and far too late, that the writing is on the wall for single-use containers. Government has just published the results of a consultation on how to tackle some of the packaging in our food chain, which builds on previously successful legislation to stop the use of single-use plastic shopping bags and things like plastic cotton buds, drinking straws and stirrers. When a 5p charge was introduced in 2015, the so-called plastic bag tax received mixed opinion from shoppers. The bag charge is now 10 pence, and with use dropping from 7.6 billion each year, 
in England, one for every human being on the planet, to just over half a million in 2020. The next stage will be removal from retail shelves of single-use plastic food containers, cutlery and some types of polystyrene cups. From October, shoppers will not be able to buy these products from retailers. This is likely to be followed by the introduction of drink container return scheme in England and Wales. This will work differently to the plastic bag tax and banning of products from shelves. Instead, anyone who makes or sells drinks in plastic or metal containers between 50 ml and 3 litres in size will have to be part of a deposit return scheme. Customers will be encouraged to return bottles to collection points like supermarkets and other public places. This could be an over-the-counter return or by putting your pop bottle into a reverse vending machine. Each returned bottle will have a minimum deposit value of 20 pence, although it's yet to be decided how this will be paid to back the customer. All bottles will be labelled to show that it can be returned. There are, of course, some exclusions and lots of details to be sorted out before this becomes law. It will be up to retailers to decide how they receive returned bottles. How online retailing will operate still needs to be ironed out. For example, how will the online customer be able to return bottles to avoid unnecessary collection facilities or journeys to deposit points? Glass bottles will not be part of the deposit scheme for various reasons, including safety and the practicalities of needing different facilities for handling and storage deposit points. Venues that sell bottled drinks for on-site consumption will operate differently. This will certainly not be the end of single-use products, but let's see how far and how quickly we can go to change the culture and the business model, so we do not have to see images of littered beaches, parks and streets. Do you know, Sue, I remember as a young boy uh, taking lemonade bottles back, and I used to get threepence for that, Did it, Yeah. which works out, I think, at about one and a half P now. Oh, it'd be less than that. Oh, would it? Think? Yeah, oh, right. I think so. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, those were the but, days. Yeah, I know. But you see, we belong to a different era, don't we? We do, yeah. Um, yep. Yeah, I can remember glass milk bottles on my doorstep. Oh, I remember them. And, and I'm used, we used to make um, Christmas table decorations with those glass milk bottles. Yeah. 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 I just remember... Are we, are we being recorded or... Is, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, okay. yeah, you can't keep chatting. <laughs> <laughs> I right. just, I'm on the naughty stair. Off you, you are go. again. <laughs> again, it's getting cold out here. Um, my next article is Bomb Squad Deal with Unexploded Mortar at Marina. A bomb squad was called to a suspected unexploded Second World War mortar that was discovered in a basement. The historic device was found in a property near the Isle of Marina in Mildenhall on the Cambridgeshire Suffolk border on Monday. An explosive ordnance disposal team from Colchester was dispatched to the scene and police put a 50-metre cordon around the site. The specialist team reported it was a substitute device, meaning that it had posed no risk to the public. Spare rooms in care homes could be used as nurses' accommodation under new plans. Using spare rooms in care homes as accommodation for nurses is just one idea in a set of plans to use affordable housing to attract more people to the profession. Wellbeing Project Manager Paul Firth, 54, employed by the Suffolk and North Essex Integrated Care Board, ICB, I'm going to test Graham soon on all these letters, <laughs> is currently working on a multifaceted project to tackle the issue of affordable housing for the nursing workforce. It's quite a far-reaching project, said Mr Firth. We decided to focus on the nursing workforce because this is the area with the greatest need in terms of vacancies. The first idea, though, in the early stages of development, is one copied from similar schemes already in place in London. We're looking into unused care homes which have stopped trading since the pandemic or have additional space, said Mr Firth. We're thinking of potentially renting out rooms or entire floors because the facilities are already there. He added the ICB's estates teams are also linking in with voluntary organisations to provide a minibus service. People want to live within three to four miles of their workplace, but we recognise that accommodation within this radius comes at a premium, he said. Providing transport could make the journey to work more feasible while saving money on hospital-centric housing. 
While both of these schemes are in the early development stages, one initiative has already taken off. Just before Christmas, they launched a live marketplace in conjunction with Homestay.com. This provides people who work within our region, ICB, to look for accommodation through a house listing portal. Working as an ICB rather than as an individual trust has allowed us to move quite quickly, Mr Firth explained. We're one of the first in the country to have an exclusive marketplace. Thus far, the portal has three hosts, and Mr Firth hopes that this number will expand in the coming weeks to give a friendly welcome to NHS staff who are new to the area. From November to February, Mr Firth's team are conducting a data collection exercise in which they ask the nurses what they really want in terms of housing in order to accommodate the workforce of the future. A new community warm space is available at a village pub to assist people struggling to afford to heat their homes. Glemsford Angels Community Group has teamed up with the Angel Inn to join the National Warm Spaces Initiative which was established in response to the soaring cost of energy bills in recent months. The pub is welcoming people to make use of its warm space from Monday to Friday between noon and 4pm, with free tea, coffee and biscuits on offer, in addition to a lunchtime meal before 2pm. Fiona Dining Cole, chairman of Glemsford Angels, said this is such a wonderful initiative of real community spirit and is a perfect fit for our support. We are very fortunate to have Debbie and Mick in our village. They have done so much for the community and are always thinking of ways to give back, as well as keep our much-loved pub going. Debbie, landlady at the Angel Inn, added, We spoke to our suppliers and supporters who have have all rallied to help with donations. It seemed the right thing to do. We have seen a steady flow of people already as the word is getting out. Questions over market thoroughfare opening delay. The newly widened market thoroughfare link in Bury St Edmunds is not yet open, more than 28 months after building work started. West Suffolk Council initially thought work on multi-million pound project to transform the former post office at 1718 Cornhill would be complete early in 2022. Meanwhile, 10 of the 12 flats built above the two ground floor commercial units are under offer, while the shops have generated significant interest, according to the council. Councillor Cliff Waterman said the delay to opening the link is disappointing in two ways. One, because of all the money tied up in the project, and the other thing is the aesthetic of the town. It is a major obstacle to free flow of pedestrians. Councillor David Nettleton said, To me, it is a good scheme, but only when it is delivered. Construction work started in September 2020 and was pencilled in to finish early in 2022. That date was later moved to last summer. Then West Suffolk Council said it hoped to open the link in early 2023. Mark Cordell, chairman of Arbery St Edmunds, said he was disappointed Market Thoroughfare had remained closed for the third successive Christmas. This delay is very frustrating, particularly for the businesses in close proximity of each entrance, he said. I am hopeful the widened walkway will better connect the old with the new than is currently the case. A council spokesman said they were speaking to Barnes Construction and hope at the end of next week to be able to confirm a date in February for the reopening. Well, we're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk, so if you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Bury Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week, so until then, from Sue Can't Stop Talking, Colin and myself, Griff, it's goodbye. (laughs) And goodbye. But I will be back.
You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.